welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring Cheryl Bailey. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hello, everybody out there. Thank you for listening, wherever you are coming from. Thank you for joining us on High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm here with my man, John Story. How you doing, John? Doing just swell, man. How you doing? Pretty good. Will, what's going on? I don't care. <laughs> what's going on? We're about to talk about amplifiers. That's what's going on. Oh, I'm joking. Boy. Of course I care how you're doing. How is it out there? No, you don't. Long Beach. Long Beach is amazing. Yeah, I bet it is. I actually wish I was out in Long Beach for these last couple months. Uh, Dude. The weather would have been a lot better than it has been in Brooklyn, but I digress. We are uh, very thrilled to welcome the wonderful Cheryl Bailey today to the High Action Podcast. She's a really fantastic guitar player, really killer tone, just a great person to talk with. It was really interesting talking with her, John, especially when she was asking, uh, when she was telling us about sort of the touch that she maintains on her instrument and how that goes into her tone and her phrasing. And it got us thinking about, you know, touch on the instrument and how it relates to your amp and whether you're playing acoustically. I just wanted to throw it to you real quick to ask kind of where have you been in the last couple of weeks when it comes to what kind of touch you're putting on the instrument, whether you're playing acoustically or with your amp. Yeah, well, sometimes it's always a little frustrating at home because sometimes I feel like I can't get my amp up to the volume that I really want to like play at to get a full, fat, warm, round sound because I have a bigger amp. It's a, it's a Fender Vibrolux, which has two speakers in it. But I've also been doing so many different kinds of electric guitar tracks recently just for people that need some tracks, some some TV show stuff. And figuring out how to dial down amps and crank more into them with a Telecaster and get a crunchy sound. My 335 can get a crunchy sound that way. Just like different stuff. It actually inspired me this week. I, I actually bought another amplifier this week, funny enough. Uh-oh. Kinda, I know. Here we go. Here we go. The gear The gear show begins. Um, but yeah, the amps, it's starting to come back for me now. For a while this year, I was... I've been playing with no amp at all, playing right into my Strymon Iridium, mm-hmm. which also I really enjoy. And I'm kind of trying to learn that as like a new instrument in of itself. I don't see it as a replacement for me permanently. Some people are seeing it as a permanent replacement for the amp. But for me, I'm finding it to be like a new sound, a new tonal landscape from all my electric guitars. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. I got a Vintage Sound 35, which is like a Princeton-sized amp, but Vibrolux power. And it gives Ooh. me the option of getting that lower tube power, which it's a sound I've been needing for a while for some for some stuff. And when we get back to gigging, it'll be pretty nice to have a grab-and-go yeah. style tube amp. You know? And you feel like you got more latitude with your touch with an amp like that, you know? Yeah. Well, that I've, I've been looking for a while. I knew, I I knew when we started getting back to gigging, I was going to do some amp shopping and, um, I kind of was doing some research with that, but yeah, because you know, the way I look at the amp too, is I want an amp that's really responsive to the dynamic change and the dynamics on the instrument and arch tops, hollow bodies are so responsive to how you play them for better or worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to me, it's, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of validity in what our guest today talked about in terms of practicing at home with the amplifier, although it's a bit of a luxury because I'm in a situation too where I can't really play very loud here, unfortunately, mm. you know. Yeah, well, to, to you, Will, you know, at that point, practicing with your amp, you know, what's the amp that you're practicing with the most mm -hmm. these days? Well, in the last year, I've definitely practiced more with an amp probably than ever uh, because I've been home, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd say if I was traveling more, you're not necessarily shedding with an amp as much. I mean, you're right. on stage with an amp, but um, my my practice amp situation, I use my Henriksen Blue, and I've got yeah. a nice small little pedal board that just has like reverb delay and overdrive just to kind of dial the the sustain. I mean, the, the amplification thing, like, you know, again, sustain versus volume, they're not the same thing at all. So just getting more comfortable with that. Um, but I mean, the Henriksen blue is, is totally my practice amp. I, my deluxe reverb stays in the closet 99% of the time, unless I have one of those rare things called a gig. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, dust it off every once in a while, plug the Les right. Paul into it, do a couple windmills and it'll be good. <laughs> it'll be good yeah, for a exactly. few weeks. Harry, do you remember when we took the tubes out of your, out of your classic 30 and we dipped them in the, in the nail polish to clean off the tips of the no, tubes? No, we didn't. Did we, we never did that, did we? Oh. I'm certain we did that. I definitely did that with my old car Rambler. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we've I, when we were at SC, because I think Otto or one of the guys at SC told us that's how you clean tubes in a guitar amp, because you dip them in nail, you dip them in alcohol or whatever. And, and they were probably fucking with us, man. Who knows, man? Those guys, <laughs> those tubes get hot on your on your uh, what is it? A PV PV oh, Classic? Yeah. Oh is yeah, that what it is? PV Classic Thirty. Those tubes get piping hot. They so do. You, you keep an oven mitt in the back of your oh, amp. Oh, yeah. I used to keep an oven mitt in the back of my <laughs> amp. That's right. You know what? It made sense. Those tubes do get hot. But, it, you know, listen, it is important to practice with the amp and to figure out your vibe with the amp, you know? Mm -hmm. So for all our listeners out there, uh, don't sleep on practicing with your amp. And that is mm -hmm. one of the uh, main things that the wonderful Cheryl Bailey was talking about in this interview. Uh, it was just a delight to get to sit down and chat with her for about an hour. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, before we get to it, uh, thank you to all of our people on Patreon for helping keep this podcast going for us. If you're not already a member on Patreon, go on over there. The New West Guitar Group is on Patreon offering all kinds of exclusive content, so check that out. And thank you for following us on Instagram and Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening. We appreciate you. And enjoy this episode with the wonderful Cheryl Bailey. Welcome, Cheryl Bailey, to the High Action Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing on this wonderful evening? Good. Really very excellent. Spring is here. It makes me happy. That's true. Yes. And, and for the listeners out there, we're coming at you on a Friday evening here. Cheryl and I are in Brooklyn. Uh, recorded separately here. Uh, well, here actually, I'm in Boston. Oh, I thought you were in Brooklyn. I moved to Boston about a year and a half ago. Oh wow! <laughs> I know you teach at but Berkeley. I, I still have a I still have a place in New York, so okay. I mean I'm not 
I still can come down and don't, don't, don't cut me out of the scene, but no, um, I moved up here a year and a half ago to uh, be the assistant chair of uh, the guitar department at Berkeley. So that's excellent. Had I known that I was going to work from home, I could have maybe, <laughs> I could have been anywhere, but <laughs> all these years. Well, I guess you've been on New York on the New York scene for so long that I just uh, assume that wherever you live, you're going to be part of the New York scene. Um, yeah. Well, I, as I said, I still, I still have an apartment in the Bronx. And um, so I was down there two weeks ago to do a, I did a gig with uh, Lafayette Harris and uh, that uh, Pat Martino tribute event, which was oh, right. great. I don't know. I think it'll come out on vinyl on a high note. Okay. Eventually. Yeah, we'll have to look for that. I remember that sounded like a really cool event. Um, it was a cool event. Well, listen, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about when it comes to your guitar technique and your artistry, but I'd love to, uh, for our listeners, dive in a little bit to your background and how you got started and got into the guitar. And uh, I know from my research that you were born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Is that correct? That's true. Okay, I got that one right. <laughs> and... Um, I think uh, it was your mother that played piano and got you kind of started into music. What kind of music were you getting exposed to at a young age? I'm always curious to ask people about this. Yeah, well, actually, I come from... My mother was an incredible pianist and church organist, as was her mother and my great-grandmother, who I never met. But, you know, we had to take classical piano when I was a kid, you know, my sisters and my brother, but I was a really terrible student. I didn't practice. <laughs> and I, then I just wanted, and they all played piano. Great. Like everybody, everybody in my family played amazing. So maybe I just needed to assert my own individuality, but I, right. so I wanted to play rock guitar when I was a teenager. Who doesn't? Who did? Hey, listen, I was the same way. That's what I wanted to do. You know? Yeah. That's what drew me to the instrument for sure. And, yep. uh, but like a lot of jazz guitar players, you know, you credit discovering Wes Montgomery on the radio and sort of that, you know, the rest being history for you. Uh, that, that was similar to me. I remember hearing impressions off smoking at the half note and just being like, yeah, okay, that's what I want to do. You know, just the, the tastefulness, the joy, the sophistication, uh, the interaction with the band, it just all seemed like, that was a really fun and uh, incredible way of playing guitar. You know, can you talk a little bit about the importance of Wes uh, and his artistry on your style? Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think Wes is someone who just transcends the genre mm -hmm. in this way that, I mean, everything he does is about delivering joyful melody mm -hmm. and swinging I mean, I feel in in this way that if you've met somebody and said, I hate jazz and I hate jazz guitar, but you played them West and they said, but I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I think there are artists in just about any genre that, you know, that are that. So to me, he just transcends the instrument and the genre from that just pure thing that he uh, communicated, you know, just feels so good. I know it's so natural, and you know we don't talk about Wes all the time on uh, the High Action Podcast, but he's certainly on our minds all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. He had a birthday recently, John. What birthday was that? Do you remember? Uh, March twenty first. Yeah, and what what year would he have been? Uh, let's see, 
I think wasn't Wes turning 92 this year? Yeah. 1929. Yeah, nineteen twenty-two. Because Kenny Burrell this year is going to be 90 because he was born in 31. So shows you these guys about that age. Yeah. Mm, wow. John is our resident, uh, you know, guitar encyclopedia over here. Any question, mm. I can just go to John. I know he's got it. Got it in the roll text. Um, Jazz guitar. Jazz guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so you're teaching at Berkeley, but you also attended Berkeley, right? As a student. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to kind of ask you about that experience because, you know, you're a real groundbreaker in a lot of ways. You know, I'm sure when you were attending Berkeley, it was chock full of a lot of guitarists. Most of them were men, you know. And yeah, there was myself and my friend Evelyn were the only women wow. in the guitar program. I have a very thick skin and a sense of humor, so I survived. Yeah. She has moved on to become a, an amazing watercolor painter and photographer but uh. that's good <laughs> yeah i mean definitely having a thick skin in this business is important you kind of learn <laughs> it as you go through it and uh, i just you know i think it's important on the high action podcast here for our listeners to just uh talk about how different the experience can be for women getting into jazz in a male-dominated uh, scene and how challenging that can be sometimes I think sometimes men can just sort of overlook that, you know, uh, especially in, in years past when it was probably even more common for men to be wildly uh, inappropriate. But, you know, what kind of uh, lessons have you learned or advice can you impart to people that are looking to just create a more equitable jazz scene mm. for everybody? Well, just don't be an asshole. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. Seriously. I mean, you know, to be honest, I, I've, I've only recently would even address these questions on a podcast or anything, because I, I really spent most of my career just, you know, from my point of view, there's only one list you can play or you can't, you know, and that was all, only my concern was ever be, to be on the list of, can you play? Right. Not a qualifier of right. anything. Like you're the best female. You, I mean, cause people don't, are you, are you the, you're the best Asian guitar player or you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you play someone again, this thing about transcending, if you put it on a recording of yeah. somebody, can you tell their gender? No, no. Either that you like it and it sounds good and it moves you or not. You turn it off. Right. So my thing has always been about, being a guitarist and a musician and, and whatever, whatever other chatter is around that is not, has, doesn't have anything to do with me really in terms of what I'm doing. Yeah. Absolutely. I still have to pick up the guitar like you and go, Hey, here's how my fingers work. And here's a sound and all that. Like, do you pick up your guitar and go, Hey, I'm a man playing the guitar, you know, like it's <laughs> yeah, exactly you're right. just playing the guitar. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, but, but that said, now that I'm in this role of leadership in the guitar program at Berkeley, which yeah. was incredibly sexist and male dominated, I do, I do see the importance of it now. And, and, but, you know, for many, many years, I would never even talk about it because I didn't want to draw any, I just want to draw attention to my guitar playing. But now I do see the, the importance of, of, you know, myself being here in a leadership role and also the chair, Kim Perlack is a, an incredible right. classical guitarist. So it's different. Is it totally different from when it was just me and my friend Evelyn? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And 
I just think it's important for us to recognize it and talk about it with our listeners so we can just continue to evolve into that place where it is different. And then it creates uh, just a more welcoming place for anyone that wants to get into the music. And ultimately, I feel like that helps the art form itself, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Yeah, to just have a lot of different people involved and have it feel welcoming to a lot of different people. I think that can only be a good thing. So um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's this thing of you want the best people. We don't know, you know, what shape or form the best people come in. Right. <laughs> Probably yeah. many, many, obviously many, many, many. Short right. people, fat people, skinny people. Yeah. You know, whatever. Exactly. It's it it could be any person if they have the opportunity to pursue a standard of excellence and dedication and honest hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody everybody deserves to be welcome. Well, you certainly had that throughout your career. Um, I've always enjoyed your playing. I, I've always thought you sounded awesome every time I heard oh, you. I remember okay. hearing some duet stuff you did with Vic Juris, who was a favorite guitarist of mine. And yeah, I just really loved the way you played with him as well. And after Berkeley, uh, you know, your hard work paid off. You ended up placing third, I believe, in the Thelonious Monk guitar competition uh, in the 90s. And uh, I'm going to let John and Will talk to you a little bit about that competition. They were both in it they, uh, oh. I, and in different years. Um, I think John right. in 2005 or so and Will in just the last uh, couple of years. And I never knew about the competition. I'm still bitter about that. I never got my shot to be judged <laughs> by Pat Metheny, uh, if only. No, I'm joking. But, you know, after that, you were uh, just a huge figure on the New York scene. And I think, uh, is my research correct that you were moved there in about 1998? Yeah. Yeah. A little before then. Maybe slightly yeah. before then. And yeah, I was living in Baltimore and I was commuting back and forth a lot for a couple of years. Yeah. I would say 98. I really, I think s- settled down there. I know, uh, especially recently you've been playing a lot, the 55 bar, which is a great scene. Uh, I I got a chance to play there quite a bit over the years with different people. I always like to ask, you know, folks that have spent a lot more time in New York than I have, you know, how the scene has changed for them, you know, since, you know, the years they arrived and kind of how they've seen an evolution of the scene and maybe uh, Mm. what they could attribute to is why that's happening, you know? I don't know. I mean, I think New York is such a great place, you know, where musicians gather. It's sort of, where all the people that were the big fish in a small pond jump into the big pond. Right, right. You know, so you you find uh, people that you never heard of and they're just killing it, you know what I mean? Like you walk into a place and you're just like, what? And then, of course, all the people you have heard of are there. Yeah. You know, so it's just, it's such a great environment to always push you to do your best. That now, in terms of the clubs and stuff, I mean, you know, there obviously this pandemic, there have been some casualties, but but I think the thing is is that as things close, other things open up. Yeah, I think people get nostalgic for things or places, but right, you know, thing if a club closes, there'll be another one that opens up in a, a few more months down the road, because there's just so much, there's so many musicians and so much creativity there mm-hmm. that you can't. You know what I mean? Like it's got to come out and be somewhere and be seen and musicians want to gather. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
There's something also really special about that neighborhood. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have experienced this in New York, where you're in the West Village, you know, by Christopher Street and 55 bars around the corner. And then slightly up 7th Avenue, you've got Smalls and Fat Cat. A little further, you've got Village Vanguard. You know, if you go towards Washington Square, you're at Blue Note, you're at Zinc, you're at Bar Next Door. I mean, there's something about that little area that's just like magical for jazz. You know, have you mm -hmm. have you found kind of pockets uh, in all the travels and touring you did before this? Have you found pockets in different cities that have felt like that for jazz? Is there anything like that? I think Chicago, when I've been to Chicago, they had a great scene. At, I remember playing at the Green Mill. The, yeah. Yeah, the Green Mill. And just, uh, it was great because even after our set, there was another later set and people were out and hanging and it just had a good feeling to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also hope, like you, that these places can see themselves through the pandemic and maybe some new spots can come up where uh, others haven't. But it's just a bring so much life to the music um, and so much life to our scene here as, as New Yorkers and people on the scene out here. Yeah, and when the pandemic's over, Will and John can come back out here and do some playing. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the spots we used to play in New York was called Subculture, which is a great little venue. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was just wonderful for what we like to do. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by AEA Ribbon Microphones and Preamps. AEA has been manufacturing high-quality ribbon mics under the AEA name since 1998. But prior to that, all the way back in the 70s, Wes Dooley himself, the founder of AEA, began servicing the old RCA 44-style ribbon microphones, which had been heavily in use since the 40s and 50s. Wes's uh, knowledge of these microphones plus new advances in technology allowed him to develop the AEA product line. Currently in New West, we use the uh, N22, the N8, even mics like the R88 and R84 from time to time. But all across the board, the entire product line is amazing. We absolutely love his microphones. So if you'd like to learn more about AEA ribbon mics or to purchase one of your own, visit aaribbonmics.com. All right, well, moving forward here a little bit, I'd like to take this moment to feature some uh, music from your recordings. I've been digging into this record you did on MCG Jazz called A New Promise. I think you released it in 2010, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, really great album. Terrific playing on this. There's a big band on it, with, which always intrigues me. And uh, I believe you made this album as a tribute to the great Emily Remler. Right. And as I was listening to this album, I was uh, researching more on Emily and I knew that she passed away young, but it's crazy to me that she passed away at the age of 32. I mean, that's just, I'm 37. To think of all the music we've missed out on from her is, uh, that's, that's a lot to kind of process. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, her impact on your playing and how that fueled the direction of this album? Yeah. Well, actually, when I was a Berkeley student, uh, she was in Pittsburgh okay. and I was on spring break and David Budway, uh, amazing, amazing piano player from Pittsburgh, some New York course now. Anyway, he called me and he said, Hey, Ems is in town yeah. and uh, you should go take a lesson. And so I, I did, I took a lesson with her and it was great. She was a great teacher. I use everything that she taught me as a teacher and a player. And she was super cool. Because she wasn't one of these people who was like, hey, time's up, kid. You got to go. Like, we just hung out and played tunes. Yeah. And um, she was on fire. She was really on fire then. And I really recommend everyone look on YouTube. 
there's a little bootleg and I was at that concert. She was, she was really on fire uh, where she played at Berkeley performance center with Schofield okay. and Abercrombie and Mick Goodrick. Okay. So look that up because she's was great. And that was around that time. And she passed away not long after that, but it was cool. And she was really encouraging. She was like, Hey, don't stop playing. She said, don't stop. She said, people are going to talk junk and say terrible shit about you. <laughs> 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 but don't listen to it. And I was like, okay, cool. And I guess, you know, it, now looking in, back in retrospect, that was really powerful moment, but I was, I kind of just shook it off. Like, well, that's cool. But I, you know, when, Marty Ashby, who produced, is the producer for MCG, a great guitarist as well. He heard me play at the 55 Bar, actually, with my band, and he came up to me after the set and said, I want to do a record. And I said, yeah, sure, cool. And I didn't hear from him for about two years, and then he called me and he said, hey, I'm ready to do this record. And uh, so I went out to Pittsburgh and did a couple gigs, and he was very good friends with Emily. Emily actually got him the job at MCG, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a hub of jazz culture in, yeah. in Pittsburgh. Obviously, a yeah. great label. They've won many Grammys and just done a lot of great stuff. And that's Marty's stuff. Wow. And um, so, anyway, he has this. If you look at the disc, there's a picture of me in front of a painting of Emily, a big oil painting. And that was in his office. So we were just throwing around ideas about what should we do on the record and this and that. And I looked up and I just, it just hit me. I said, let's do something for M's. And he lit up and he was like, yeah, that's what we're doing. And that was it. Soon as soon as, you know, he was, he's a kind of guy, like once he knows what it is, then he just put the whole thing together with the arrangers. We pretty much did that record in a day. Wow. We did it in a day actually. That's with, um, yeah, the Three Rivers Jazz Orchestra. So they were already a band. And then um, uh, Mike Tomorrow, the arranger, I just sent him some of my music and I came in that day. And that was the first time I heard the arrangements and we we did it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm really enjoying this record. I really like listening to it. And you're playing this great throughout. So let's take a moment here um, to play... A quick track here, a 2010 release on MCG Jazz called A New Promise. Uh, this is from Cheryl here. And the track I'd like to play is You and the Night and the Music. So here we go. Enjoy a little bit of this. Thank you. 
wow. such a jerk. No, yeah, when I hit wow. those little pops. <laughs> it sounds so good. It sounds so good. I'm, I'm just enjoying this so much. And then uh, looking over at you, shaking your head like we all do when we're listening to ourselves. But that sounds killer. It's just really great phrasing. Nice tone. And uh, I want to pass it over here to John uh, to ask you a few questions, Cheryl. Well, sound absolutely burning. And it's so great to have you on High Action. We, we so appreciate you being here. And um, you know, it's funny, I, I was thinking when, when we got you on the books, I was thinking back to, uh, let's see, 2005 when I got selected to be in the Monk competition. It's hard to think back to a time before social media, but I remember, you know, <laughs> looking back at like, okay, who was in the 95 competition? Because uh, I knew there was one guitar competition before ours at that point with the Monk Institute. And I uh, went on the old Just Jazz Guitar website with Ed Benson's famous Just Jazz Guitar, which sadly is no more, but the old links page, which was kind of coveted. I remember getting your name, getting your website listed on the Just Jazz Guitar artist links was like the biggest thing on the internet for jazz guitar. And, you know, Jimmy Bruno's right there at the top. And I went to your website and I saw your pictures and I was like, man, you know, I can't, I wanted to check out some of your recordings. Of course, this is even iTunes was barely out. This wasn't as much access to us learning about players. And I, I think back to that time and how innocent of a time it was for musicians to learn about other musicians. I mean, I'm a student in California, so I wouldn't maybe get to see you play unless you were out here to play at the bakery or something like that. I'm curious, you know, w was there a lot of camaraderie the week that you did the competition in 95 amongst the guitar players? Because the guys I was with in 2005, I've stayed in touch with a lot. And one of them passed away. Paul Vinton passed mm -hmm. away, but Torsten Goods and Yotam and Lage. I mean, whenever they're in LA, we exchange amplifiers. We always have a, a hang that was like a real kind of a community that was established on a time. I'm curious, was there a similar kind of camaraderie in the 95 competition? I don't know. I don't remember that. I mean, I just remember for myself, I was so, I didn't even expect to be there in any way. And I just, I was just so focused on the performance and, and, keeping it together, you know, oh, yeah. but I did meet, I mean, I, I met Jim Hall through that experience and we became friends and Pat Martino, who, who's always, you know, whenever I've been in touch with him or see him, he's always so warm. And, and, and so I think those were the things that really stand out to me about that experience, you know, cause you do the semifinal and then the next day you're in the final. And I, I mean, that I was even there, I was really not prepared in any way that I would be there. So I just, I kind of was like, let me just survive this with a smile in some way. <laughs> <be> okay. <laughs> it's fun. I, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to talk to Jesse Van Ruler when we had him on our podcast, but um, it's fun. Great. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if I've talked to anybody else in the 95 competition. And then of course I know Will and some of the guys that were in the latest one with the Hancock Institute. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, it's fun to get to talk to you and make that connection because it is this funny little thing that happened and it was, it was crazy. It was, it was the craziest couple of days. It was also the week after Hurricane Katrina when we had ours. So it was what DC was a very weird place to be that week. And I see. Yeah, and it, it was it was a strange week in general, but we've mm. a lot of us have stayed in touch since then. And then social media came out 
and now we're we all ping each other on there a lot, you know. So well, it's uh, interesting because I lived in Baltimore during that time, so I know what you mean because you came and you guys were all hanging out in the hotel together. Because I lived in Baltimore, so I just drove down for the afternoon. Yeah, and then and then drove back. So I did. I missed out on that hang because actually I played with Harold Summy in Harold Summy's band, who won the drums mm-hmm. previous to that. Um, and, um, maybe one of the early monk companies, but I remember, you know, meeting people over the years that knew Harold from that because of the hang there. So I, I, unfortunately I missed out on that. So that's a great, that's great that you got that experience. Yeah. A lot of guitar players hung Steve Herberman was there, like like DC guys, you know? Yes. And I had, I hadn't met anybody from DC yet. I was still in LA at the time. Um, so I, I vaguely might remember of us hanging in the Watergate at the, at the bar there with Pat and George. I just posted for George's birthday the other day, the picture of Russell and Pat and I and Terry Lynn Carrington in the bar of the Watergate hotel. That's awesome. (laughs) But anyway, you know, back to you and, and your career and just actually one other interesting thing. Um, Rick McCurdy's guitars are really stunning and really cool. And you don't see a lot of people playing them. And I always wonder why, because I actually did get to play one once and Perry and I got to hang with Joe Beck, uh, when he was around, when he was out here That's in right. LA at the NAMM show and he was playing the alto guitar that I, that he had built for him, the alto archtop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. stunning instrument in his sound hole shapes. How did you meet Rick? And, um, I'm just really curious, did something about his instruments really speak to you early on, or did you just kind of accidentally, I know Vic might've had a couple of his guitars. He, he had a great, he built a great one for Vic, actually. I don't know where that guitar is, but yeah, I met him through Jack Wilkins and, you know, I would say, Hey, who, who works on your guitars? And he said, go to this guy. And I'd go down there and he'd do amazing work on my guitar, but he'd always have something that he had just built sitting there. It's kind of like the pusher, you know, they give you a little taste and then you're like back for more. And I, you know, I was waiting there, I'd be playing and I'd be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually I was like, okay, dude, you got to build me a guitar. And, you know, it was funny because he makes a lot of guitars. He's down there by wall street and he makes a lot of guitars for rich people that don't play them, that build them for their hang on their wall and the, their Asian themed room or whatever. <laughs> and so we, you know, when he gets a player like myself or Vic and, and uh, my friend Chris Bergson's had some guitars. He's so psyched because he's like, I want people that can play to play these. So he's really, and he makes them for, I've had some builders that's, you know, they're like, well, I'm the artist. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm not going to play your guitar because I don't like it. <laughs> you know, like, but Rick's like really pays attention to what you want. Cause he really wants you to play his guitar. He wants your guitar, his guitar to be your favorite guitar. And I know when he built that guitar for Vic, you know, Vic had that Doyle guitar. That was sort of, wow, his thing. He had so many. And Rick was really freaked out. Like, I got to make it, you know, so he's really studied the Doyle and, you know, just wanted it to be something that Vic loved to play. And he he made Vic a great guitar. So, uh, yeah, I wish more people would check him, check him out. He's he's great. Well, and it's also cool. He's one of these luthiers who's in New York City, which, you know, I mean, that's the history of Don, John D'Angelico and Dequi- Jimmy DeQuisto. And um, we've also, of course, Sadowski's great New York guy and Victor Baker really? out, out here in San Diego. 
Um, mm -hmm. Stephen Marchioni, who's built guitars for me and for Will, um, was a New York guy who worked at Pensa Sur for many years. And mm -hmm. there's something about New York luthiers that just the way they build guitars, it's like they get it. They get it that players need something to really get their stuff done and that they take risks. I, I love Rick's aesthetic is really cool. So I, I love to just, yeah, it's a shout out to him kind of today too. Um, to for our listeners, go check out his guitars. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope someday we can hang Cheryl and just play some tunes because yeah, I let's do it. Let's definitely do that. Yeah, uh, we can go down to Rick's place too and just hang out and play all his, whatever he's working on. Well, what's funny too is New West when we were in Seattle, we hung at Steve Anderson's shop one yeah. time. So there's three of us going there and we play Blue Rondo a la Turk, our trio version, and Steve was just standing there, he's like. You guys mind sticking around a little longer and playing some more? He's like, I don't get to hear these things that much. And like, we're all playing as an ensemble. And he was just like, okay, could you guys come up here maybe every month and do this for me? <laughs> and you know, bless Luthier's little hearts, but like, boy, you know, that's a that's a lonely career that they have to do. And it's a tough career to market yourself in. And there's so many talented guitar makers on the planet right now. It's kind of mind blowing, but. Um, well, the only other question that I had, because I don't want to take up too much of our time here, um, we've had some interesting responses to this kind of question. We had Dave Stryker on here talking about teaching, um, and what's like what's one of the first things we want to impart on our students? And with you being at Berkeley, I'm so curious, having such a large international student community there, um, is there something that you really want to instill uh, with your students right away when they start studying with you for like, for example, Dave Stryker said that he feels like sound is the first thing he really wants his mm. students to be aware of. Peter Bernstein talked about internal pulse and really internalizing the pulse before you do anything. I'm, I'm curious, is there something that you really want to instill upon your students early on in the, in the lessons? That's a great question. Yeah, definitely time and time and feel. Um, and tone will come out of that, really, you know. But, you know, you can tell, or I can tell within two measures, you know, a student comes in and sometimes they can play a lot of stuff. But I can tell in two measures, when they when it's my turn to solo, their rhythm guitar is going to suck from their mm -hmm. melodic phrasing because it's all tied, right? It's the same pulse. If you learn how to really just swing and get your quarter note, feel that quarter note. Everything's going to sit on there. So, you know, someone comes in and it's squirrely right out of the gate from their melodic phrase. I could tell the rhythm guitars. On. So we start there, you know, day one and just work on establishing not like, oh, I understand a quarter note. You know, people be like, oh, I know a quarter note. Like, but if you feel it and you're and I'm in the back of the room, I should feel it come from you from the back. I'm sitting in the back of the room. I need to feel your quarter note. Not just your thoughts about it. I need to really feel it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, a lot of people we've talked to on a lot of our guests on the podcast have we've all emphasized how important rhythm guitar playing and accompanying others is. And you know, all the greats. If we could go back in time and talk to Wes and Barney Kessel and Jim Hall and uh, even Charlie Christian, what they would say is, you know, learn to accompany others and really make the music dance and interact with people in that way. And time feel is the currency for that. You know, if we're really mm -hmm. feeling our pulse we can get that across to other people in the band in a supportive way, as well as a way that we might be leading an ensemble with a solo. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's great. Well, I, again, delight to have you today here and I'd love to pass it over to my colleague, Mr. Will Braun here. Hey, Cheryl, nice to virtually meet you. Um, 
I wanted to talk a little more about that last track, if you don't mind. It, it was so refreshing. Um, for better or for worse, I haven't heard guitar with like horn backgrounds in a long time. It's just kind of interesting. Um, did you do any live shows with that with that setup with that ensemble? We did after the record. I didn't hear that arrangement till I walked in that day. Right. But it was based on though, you know, Mike. Mike is a great arranger, and that he right he really listened to recordings of my trio, mm. and 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 so we kept that form where I would just blow out front because there's something about that rhythmic phrase of that melody da 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 da, da you know so that was always a a duet with drums in the front of the song mm-hmm. maybe for a couple courses of you know just guitar and drums just breaking up that rhythm and that phrase and then the band would come in so that was the main that was the part of the arrangement that i knew but i didn't know what was going to happen until the horn players started playing it sounded, it sounded great i mean your lines pierced right through everything i'm curious were you playing um it sounded like you're playing a full hollow body for that do you remember if if you know i always play my mccurdy okay. mercury yeah on everything i've been playing that <laughs> for years i love it it's something we've been talking about um that that i think is such a it's specific to guitar playing in different different volume settings different uh instrumental settings but how does your playing your whether it's your lines how much you play how little you play how does that change depending on like the volume and the intensity of the music especially live right when you don't have he- headphones on yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the thing is, I mean, great, the secret to, the secret to great technique is relaxation, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's no way that you can play if you're tense. So, you know, I, well, for one thing, I always follow that. Actually, Ted Dunbar told me this. I didn't study with Ted Dunbar, but one time I had an amazing conversation with him. Um, Is I always practice with an amp, no matter where I am, even if it's because, and that was Wes's thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he originally played with a pick and then, you know, they said, you, you have to t- turn it down. And he, but he understood that his el- instrument is the electric guitar. Mm-hmm. So you, if you're always practicing with your amp, then you're playing your full instrument and your touch is appropriate. So my thought is if I need more volume, I go to the amp. I don't, I don't dig in more because then I'm going to create tension and I won't yeah. have any fluidity. So the idea is you keep that consistent and whatever my amp can go. I got a lot of headroom. So, yeah. so that I keep this light. That is such a great point. Um, I feel that my earlier years, I, I prioritized, I, I didn't worry about the amp as much with in the practice time, but it is such a great point you make because the amp really is part of the jazz guitarist's instrument. Like every time we play in an ensemble, I'd say <laughs> safely 100% of the time, we're yeah. using amp, right? That's right. <laughs> so that, that's just such a great point. Um, another question I have, mm-hmm. Perry alluded that you have a connection to Mr. Jimmy Weibel. Jimmy has seen me through this pandemic. I've been, like gone through his books so much. Um, can you talk a little about your your connection with Jimmy Weibel? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, actually, I have two McCurdy guitars. Uh-huh. The first one, I you know Rick designed for me. The second one was a gift from Jimmy Weibel. So he went to Rick and had ordered one, and of course Jimmy. Jimmy taught me that angels 
can be embodied in human form. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it was a gift from Jimmy. He was in New York and we hung out. We went all around. It was amazing. We went to see Dr. Lonnie and we went to hung out with Peter Bernstein. Anyway, so he left for L.A. And the next day, Rick calls me and said, Jimmy has some left you something here. Wow. And it was the guitar because he knew I wouldn't because he kept saying, I want to give you a guitar when when I die. And I said, well, you're not going to die. So shut up. Yeah, we're yeah. not having this conversation. And so he knew I wouldn't have accepted it if he had been there. So he just left town and left it behind for me. <laughs> wow. But I met Jimmy. I was out in LA. I was doing some gigs. I think I kind of tied it in with the NAM show. And I, I can't remember exactly what venue might've been playing with John Pisano mm-hmm. at the guitar night. Mm-hmm. And this really beautiful older guy is there and somebody introduced me and I hadn't heard his name, but I didn't know his music then. And he was just, he was so kind and so we became friends and we kept in touch and i have a series of letters like old school like writing letters and i'd sit down and i'd write a letter to jimmy and then he'd write me a letter back and um it was kind of interesting because it was a time in my life where i was actually was going through some rough stuff um you know heartbreak type of stuff and i was i was questioning whether I wanted to keep playing the guitar. Mm. And I thought maybe I'm going to drive a truck for UPS. Maybe that would be it. I mean, I was really serious and it was strange because Jimmy came into my life about this time. And we, and I never told him any of this when anything, I would just talked about music and he would send me little lines he wrote. And then, Mm. then I went and stayed with him in one, another trip. I went out to LA. I just stayed at his place and practiced in this. It was amazing. But that actually that time when he gave me the guitar that night before I dropped him off, you know, we'd been hanging out and he just said, you know what? You're part of us. You're part of our family. You're it it was kind of like Emily in a funny way when she said that to me. She was like, you're always loved. And because, of you know, you're part of this family of music and and it was just the right time I needed to hear that. So hence, that's why he sits on my wall, my office, because I feel that I'm here today because of his guidance and and just love. And he was like that to everybody. I mean, I I could think of other stories that people have told me very similar where he just had this just openness. And 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 another thing about Jimmy, you know, he he left the scene to take care of his wife, who was very ill. And I asked him about that. I said, wow, that must have been, you know, here you were at the height of your career and all this stuff was happening and you left, you left it. That must have been so hard. And he said, in all honesty, you know what? It was the easiest thing I ever did. Wow. You know what Heart I mean? Of gold. Like, Heart of gold. Yeah. I know. And I, I think of him all the time. And really, I do. I have him here. And every time I look at him, I just think, man, if I could be as open and loving as this person was to me and to others. Wow. I I feel like he doesn't have a huge recording catalog, at least that I can really find. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, I've worked through his books and I mean like the, his concept for solo guitar is so, so amazing. Um, but, and it's kind of interesting how some, it's kind of a very traditional way to leave your legacy is in the written music rather than the recorded music. And I think that's kind of becoming less and less common, but mm-hmm. I love that Jimmy story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, also, well, do you, know, you, 
Oh, go on. You know, I was just going to say that made me think. He also would have said, make up your own scales. Mm. Like, he, he was so modern. Like, people go, I'm modern. Hey, I'm modern jazz guitar. So I'm coming. And I go with, like, there's this old man who's like, make up your own scales. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> no rules. That's Jimmy. Anyway, you were saying. You were saying. No, I, I was asking, uh, moving forward, if um, if in the last year you've adopted any new projects that you may have coming up or or if things have changed for the way that you're kind of going about you know keeping yourself inspired musically hmm. I, well there's actually a guy that uh john wheatley who uh, is here in the faculty at berkeley and you know i guess this is kind of interesting because i commuted from new york to be here so i didn't have a lot of time to hang out m- with folks so even though he's been here a long time we just kind of became friends musically and he's um he's really knows his business about jimmy rainey oh. so we've been working on he knows all those duets so i've been learning them so we've been working on this jimmy rainey project together um and uh yeah he's really super knowledgeable about you know jimmy rainey and um barry galbraith and uh a lot of those early players so i've been checking that out i think mm-hmm. that's something uh, i hope when uh you know, we can get out and do some playing. We'll do more of that. Beautiful. Well, I think I'm going to send it back towards Perry, who has some more music of yours to play. Thank you. It was great. Great chatting. Yeah. <laughs> I Hi, Cheryl. I love hearing you uh, talk about Jimmy Weibel. Um, that was just such an incredible experience, it seems like you had with him. And uh, we had some nice but limited experiences with him in Los Angeles. I remember one time he showed up to a show we were doing. I think it was in San Pedro in a little venue called Rosalie and Alva's. And I walk out and all of a sudden, Jimmy freaking Weibel sitting in the front row. And I'm like, what the heck? Um, Cause yeah, we were studying his etudes in college and stuff. I mean, John remember David Oaks gave us that stuff to, to review all, all the time. Right. And oh, it yeah. was, it was yeah. just great stuff. So well, I would tell you there is, Jimmy played me some things and I don't know who has them. Hmm. I'm going to guess maybe Larry Koontz or one of those folks might have it. He had some air checks of him with Benny Goodman that were stunning. And I, I don't know where you can find, but he had them and he played them for me. And he sounded like uh, Charlie Christian on steroids. I mean, he was, it was so, Wow. It was killing. I, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. And so for the listeners, if you haven't been checking out Jimmy Weibel, um, go ahead and do yourself a favor and check that out. And also, uh, let's check out this track that um, Cheryl did from a record called Plucky Strum, which uh, awesome bassist Harvey Est. This is a track you did. I'm assuming it's for Jimmy because it's called yes. For Jimmy. So let's take a little listen to this. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's Beautiful. what I'm talking about. That sounds so good. Uh, getting a great tone out of that acoustic, and you know, something that we do a lot in the New West Guitar Group is going between electric guitar, hollow body, and acoustic. And um, yeah, I guess. Have you been playing more acoustic lately? Or have you been playing more of the McCurdy? How do you feel when you go back and forth? How does your technique change? Any, any kind of thoughts on that? Wow, that's really funny. You know, that project with Harvey was the only time I've even owned an acoustic guitar really? and played one. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, and it kind of came about because I would go up to his place and we'd play duo. And I got this acoustic guitar because I never had one, to hmm. be honest. And then we, it was fun. We were like, oh, this is so fun because the, you know, just the dynamic and the volume and yeah. everything. So we just started writing this music. And, and so that's how that project happened. But outside of that, I haven't played acoustic. I find it very hard to play acoustic guitar. I have mad respect because I, because of this thing about my technique is all based around playing light and Hey, I need, no, I have the knobs to turn up the volume right. as opposed to acoustic guitar where you have to pull the sound out of it. Yeah. Well, you could have fooled me. I thought you had a really nice touch on it and you're getting a good sound. I mean, sometimes a light touch is kind of what you want on an acoustic guitar to get a, to get like a more intimate sound like that, you know? Hmm. So, um, yeah, well, it sounds great. You know, if, if you want to keep playing it, I'll keep listening to it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and that was kind of my bastardized finger style on that as well <laughs> well i was noticing with your technique you hold the acoustic guitar kind of more up like the neck a little bit higher like you might a classical guitar but you don't necessarily do that when you're playing your mccurdy um no but i do wear it up high so that i at least it feels i don't there's no tension i'm not reaching or have any weird angles with my yes wrist as as we've discussed, no tension, right? This this is not called the high tension podcast. High it's, the, it's the high action podcast. Uh, right. So, where is your action? Would you say, Cheryl? Uh, do you like do you like to keep that high action high, or is it more on the lighter side? It's, yeah, it's low. It's like yeah. I mean, the way Rick, especially when Rick sets it up, it's like fast skis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have small hands and so I, I don't know. That feels good. I feel if the action's too heavy, I'm, I have to work too hard. Maybe I'm just lazy. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it's just, it's just how everybody wants to get it done. You know, I find it kind of a fascinating subject, which is kind of why we titled our podcast after it, because some players really need a lot of resistance to get their mm -hmm. phrasing. Right. And other players, yeah. it's more of a finesse game. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you know, your phrasing is just world-class. And so thank you so much for, you know, sharing Thanks. your music with us here on, on the podcast and uh, hipping all of our listeners to uh, your story and uh, all the wonderful experiences you've had. Uh, where can our listeners check you out? Uh, what's, you know, kind of the best place to send them to if they want to follow or subscribe to Cheryl Bailey? Well, yeah. I mean, Instagram, I'm always putting up stuff. Okay. Um, uh, guitar nerd, G T R N E R D, guitar nerd. Okay. Um, obviously, my webpage, I say if you love an artist, buy directly from them. You can download digital, yes. download yes. physical. We have Cheryl Bailey three t shirts. Hey. We have plucky strum t shirts too. 
That's a good um, one. Anyway, you can get that stuff there or my webpage. Yeah, so my webpage there, uh, Facebook, it's just my name. And um, where else? Oh, Twitter. I'm Twitter. on Twitter. I do all those things. You do I tweet. Okay. Oh God. Well, thanks for being here with us, Cheryl. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys. So nice to meet you. And I can't wait till we can all be in 3d and we can jam and yeah, hang out. Seriously. We'll, we'll see each other soon. Yeah. Take all it right. easy. Have a good weekend. Yeah. You too. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.